we have been in Romans chapter 6 for the last uh, oh, three or four weeks, and we have really been uh, talking about how that Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 are really the key chapters for your life and my life when it comes to uh, having the victorious Christian life. And the book of Romans is so filled with the great doctrines that uh, uh, it really explain what the church is, is what we're supposed to follow and what we're supposed to teach. You know, when it comes to my Bible and the way I have to work things out, I'm kind of an index guy. I like to divide things up and put them into an index. If you look into my study Bible, I have probably 20 pages at the beginning that were blank and 20 pages at the back that were blank. And over the years, I listed and put in everything there that, that really helped me, uh, you know, figure out how the Bible uh, was. And so what I had to do is I, you'll see it both front and back, a little index. And I did that so at a ready reference, I could, I could, I could sort through that material if somebody asked me a question and, you know, I wouldn't have to basically think about it. And I could just go to that index and find out where I was. I, I've always done things that way. To me, once I understand how something is... <coughs> Then I index it, either mentally or somewhere written down that for easy access, I, you know, I can get, it, get my hands on it and get it to work. And I, I've done the same thing with the Bible uh, in the New Testament. And, you know, to me, when I look at, you know, how Romans fits into the scheme of things, uh, and I, I, I kind of index my New Testament. For instance, if you want to find where the true church is, if you want to find where the absolute true church is at, then you're going to go to the book of Acts. If you're going to want to find out where the true church is taught how to minister, then you're going to go to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. In fact, 1 Corinthians teaches the true church how not to minister, and then 2 Corinthians teaches the true church how it's supposed to minister. And then I would go to the book, if you want to find out what the church should guard against, you want to go to the book of Galatians. If you want to find out what the true church should have as far as its relationship with Christ, well, obviously, that book be the book of Philippians, or excuse me, Ephesians. If you want to understand what the mission for the true church is, then you go to Philippians. And if you want to find out what the true church's worst enemy is, you'd go to the book of Colossians. And I said all that to say this. When you come to the book of Romans, where Acts teaches you what the true, who the true church is, where 1 and 2 Corinthians lays out what the true church, how it should minister and how it should not, where Galatians lays out for you what the true church should guard against. Ephesians lays out what the true church's relationship with Christ should be. Philippians lays out what the true church's mission is. And then Colossians lays out what our worst enemy is. The book of Romans teaches what the true church should believe. It is the key book in the Bible that lays down the fundamental doctrines of why, as the true church of Jesus Christ found in the New Testament, why we believe what we believe and why we stand on what we stand on. You add to that, from then on you add to that what I call the models in the Bible. If you want to find the model church, that'll be First and Second Thessalonians, the church at Thessalonica. You want to find the model pastor, that'll be Timothy. You want to find the model of stewardship, that'll be Titus. You want to find the model Christian, that'll be Philemon. When you put all of that together and you index your Bible... You index your Bible, and now you have a source. If you want to find out if you're interested in ministry and you want to really find out the true biblical way to ministry, now you have an index, First and Second Corinthians. If you want to find out how to be a good steward of what God has called you and what God has given you, then you'll go to the model steward. That'll be Titus. 
Whatever issue you want to study in your life to put your life together. See, this is the problem so many times, and this is what I'm trying to do in your life. So many times people get into the Bible, and the reason why they get so discouraged when they read the Bible is because they read it, but they don't understand what they're looking for or what they're trying to find. You know what you need to do with your Bible? You need to index it. You need to begin in a very simple way to begin to understand how the New Testament indexes itself so you can find some things. I've given a number of you people a little book that called, it's called Promises. Anybody got one of those in your purse right here? You can throw up here at me real quick. I know I've given a bunch away. Anybody got one with you here? Who got one? You got one? Okay, yeah, thank you, Renee. That's good. This little thing's called the Bible Promise Book. And I give these out all the time. We have them in the bookstore, but don't buy them. Just ask me for one, and, you know, I'll, I'll sell you one really cheap. Um, <laughs> we have black market ones, and we have real ones. <clears throat> this is one of the greatest little books for young Christians to ever have. You know why? Because you all struggle with issues in your life, and what happens is maybe a problem will come up. And you don't know where to go in the Bible to find that particular problem. You know what this little book does? It talks about, <clears throat> it talks about <clears throat> all the different problems that you and I can have. Anger, <clears throat> unbelief, charity, comfort, contentment, correction, courage, <clears throat> your enemies, envy, eternal life, faith, all of the different aspects. What you do when you turn to the page that's on, it gives you five or six or seven verses that go along with a particular subject. You know what this does? This indexes your Bible to help you at a ready reference, get what you need for whatever situation you're in. If your car blows up, you don't have any money to fix it, there's a section on what to do when your car blows up and you have no money. <laughs> it simply says, do not under any circumstances call Bob Alexander at 816-35, no. <clears throat> it gives you, it's a ready index. It's a ready reference for what you want. We just ordered some in that we found, that Nicole found, that are, it's, it, they're, they're, they're Bible promises for mothers. And it has to do with motherhood and all of those things. And uh, we're going to get some of those in. Indexing your Bible is the key. And when you start to realize that that book looks very complicated, but when you begin to break it down and index it so you know where to go in your Bible, just like you know where to go to get the verse you need. Now, in time, ladies and gentlemen, you don't need this book anymore, and you got to pass it on to somebody else. You know why? Because this is just the beginning. Who's got their three-by-five cards with them today? Anybody? Hold them up. Hold up three-by-five card. you got There's back here, back over here. That's all right if you don't have them today, but you know there's some over here. See? There's some over here. You know what those are? Those are a basic concept of this. In other words, now... Christina here is an alcoholic, a recovering alcoholic. <laughs> so her verses deal with alcoholism, see? How's it working? Not that good. Not that good. All right, well. <laughs> just kidding you. She's not an alcoholic. I'm just kidding you. My point is this. You won't need those cards forever, just like you won't need this book forever. You know why? Because in time, thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. This is just the beginning, you see. Now, this is going to be really tough, what I'm about to say next, and I may break down and cry in the process, but in time, you're not going to need me anymore. You know why? Because my, what do you mean shaking your head no? What are you talking about? Oh, well, thank you. That'd be very, that's very kind. You got a camera? Why don't we get some pictures together afterwards? <laughs> you just stand here like this. 
in, in a sense, you won't know. Because you want to learn how to get the Bible down yourself. And it starts by indexing your Bible. And when you start to come through that little basic index that I gave you this morning, it begins to show you. Thank you, sweetheart. It begins to show you uh, how the Bible itself breaks down. What Renee's got over there shows you how that you can find subjects in the Bible to break down. What those little three-by-five cards are are your particular areas. Maybe your children or maybe your job or maybe some area in your life that you want to get victory over. That's how you do it. But if you want to break down your New Testament and you want to find the book that teaches what the true church should believe, it's the book of Romans. And that's where, that's where we're at today. You put that all together and uh, it'll, it'll change your life. And I, I must tell you, I have never seen in, in all the years of my ministry, and I've been, been in the ministry for a, a, a few, few years, and it all just happens when God's timing is right. And I have never seen uh, anything like it as that I'm seeing right now with the people that uh, uh, the attitudes of God's people of really trying to get into the Word of God. I really believe with all of my heart that the majority of you really want to have the victorious Christian life. Not because of what you tell me, but the changes that I see in your lifestyle of what you're really trying to do. And last week we talked about how that the key word in that was the word consistency. We saw the key word in our victory over the flesh is one simple little word, being consistent. Being consistent with your Bible. Being consistent in your time coming to church and growing in the Word of God. Being consistent in what you do to study. I talked to people, you know, all week long. In fact, I, you know, even talked to a person this morning that, that uh, was telling me that, that the struggle they're going through. And this, this is true so many times. And sometimes it gets perplexing because you, you, you try to do what's right. I've had at least four people tell me this this week. You start reading your Bible. You start getting your three-by-five card. You start doing this. You start doing that. You start getting that consistency in your life. And, and here's what you think. You think that when you do that, things are automatically going to get better. That's not the way it works. It isn't going to get better. It's going to get worse for a short period of time. What the devil wants to do is he knows in the past. He knows us. And he knows in the past that we have given up many, many times. When push come to shove, we would just quit. And he thinks in his mind that this time is just like all the other times. So what happens is simply this. And remember now, the overall concept here is God has something that he wants you to, to do in your life. God has reached down through your life and you now are going to be the key for other people in one form or fashion. Maybe your family, maybe this or maybe that. The moment you decide to do what's right and you're going to commit yourself to doing what God wants you to do, do you really think the devil's going to walk up and say, well, you know what, I'm sorry to lose you, but I want to wish you the best in life. I guarantee you. He knows he can never get your soul in hell if you're truly saved. But he also knows that if he can't get you in hell, he will keep you from doing whatever God wants you to do, thereby, in the long run, getting a lot of other people in hell that you would have impacted in your life. That's all it is. You know what my word is to you? You know what the, my word of encouragement to all of you is today? It's the word consistency. Stay with it. What soldier, when he goes through basic training... What soldier, when he goes through AIT, what soldier, when he is trained for combat, and finally he makes the first entry into combat in a foxhole in the middle of the night, 
out there in no man's land, what good is all your training doing if at the first shot fired over your head you get out of there and run for cover? You see, the training is to get you into the battle you're in. And what you're facing right now is the battle. It's all right. Devil will throw every cockeyed concept into your head. You know what? When I'm in doubt and I have struggles in my life and I'm not sure about things, I follow a simple rule. Go with what you know. Omel Sabaka used to say it many, many times, and I've, it's drilled into my mind. Never doubt in the darkness what God has given you in the light. You carry it through, and it'll carry you through. And last week we saw the key word was consistency, and that word was built around three other words. And here again, my little indexing program. We talked about the word knowing, the word reckon, and the, cons- the word to yield. We talked about knowledge is power. And what my job is is to teach you knowledge, to show you what the Bible says, to teach you doctrine, to give you the principles of the Word of God. We talked about probably the greatest definition that you'll ever hear or I could ever give you on how to reckon yourself dead. How do you fix yourself on that horizon? How you fix yourself on the judgment seat of Christ or the coming of Christ? Don't worry about what's going on around you. Don't worry about what's flying over the top of your head and what's coming down around you. Keep your focus on His return. Reckon yourselves to be dead. And then to yield. To yield simply means you start doing something for Christ. You start allowing God to use you. And we put these in the proper context uh, and saw how that each one of them helps us accomplish really the theme of Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, and Romans chapter 8. How Christ's death on the cross through the baptism of Jesus' death, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, how we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, how it affects us in the, in the, in the, as a child of God in what we believe and, and sets our focus that we're dead to the things of this world but alive in Christ Jesus. Well, Today we're going to look at another section. Now we want to turn to Romans chapter 6 and let's begin reading in verse 14 and I'll give you a little background of what we did last week. So if you're kind of a visitor here, it kind of puts it into some kind of context for you. And it's always good to remember yourself because, uh, you, know, I, you know, many times, you, you know, you get too many things going and you can't remember uh, and sometimes you'd have to have it to put it all together. But here's what he says in verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, For you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked (coughs) that we were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we ask you to take this time today. We thank you for those that are here. We pray, Father, that that we can stay focused now, and we can just keep uh, looking at what you have for us as we take a little bit of this every week and try to break it down. Help these folks, Lord, to, to look at the Bible as not a threat anymore, but look at the Bible as their best friend. Help them to look at the Bible and with the short little things that I give them, how they can actually index uh, the Word of God, that they can find things easier, and uh, Lord, uh, and, and then put it into their own lives. Help us today. Thank you for each one here. Thank you for our visitors. And may they leave today with a blessing from your Word. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for His sake we ask it. Amen.
Once again, we begin to find a three, four, five verses that are just absolutely loaded. When you go through Romans, and I know this is true when I studied it, when you go through Romans, it's, so, it's just so clogged with stuff that we need to know that you actually got to section it out in small verses and then go back and break those down. If you notice, that's how I'm doing it. It doesn't do me any good or do you any good if I just take this thing and just throw it all at you and don't help you break it down. That's not my style, first of all, and that won't help you. But what we want to do is we want to we want to we want to look at this thing to get out of it what you and I need to know and what God wants us to know that we can have that consistent victorious Christian life. All right, let's look at verse 14. Let's take that one first. And this is a great concept. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. Now you know what we've done so far in our Romans and and I don't know if you've been paying attention. You've heard me say many many times that the price of learning is repetition. When I came through the Bible, you know, we studied in the book of Acts, you know, on Institute last night, and, and probably, you know, those of you uh, uh, understand now, uh, you know, Acts is probably beginning to open itself up. If last night was absolutely the key for you, if you didn't figure it out from last night and have the tools now, you ain't going to make it. But you saw how we took a very complicated book and broke that thing down last night in such a fashion that it gives you an understandable that you can walk out of here, and so many of you did last night. You said, I got it. I finally got the key that I needed to put it all together. Well, that's good. And we did that in what, three months or three sessions in a month? Hey, I told you last night, when I went through the book of Acts to break it down, I probably went through the book of Acts 75 times. It literally probably took me eight or nine years of my life to really grasp the book of Acts. You know what I had to do? I had to keep going over it. The book of Acts and the book of Romans were a lot alike in one respect. I'd get it down, I'd go through it, I'd break it down, and I'd think I'd have it. And then I'd start to read it and realize I didn't have it. And I had to go back and do it again. I probably went through Romans or Acts probably someplace close to 75 times. I know I went through Hebrews at least 100 times. I know when the issue of speaking in tongues, I probably, that was a hard concept because of all the different aspects and uh, breaking down the different spiritual gifts. I probably took 200 times going through that to figure it all out. I know Matthew took me at least 40 or 50 times breaking that whole thing down, but in time, I understood it. Because if you're going to learn anything about the Bible, you're going to have to go over it and 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 over it. I, all my life, I've heard, you know, we, I've had a Bible study. And one of the things about, you know, one of the things about the kind of Bible study that we have is that sometimes, you know, people come next month that wasn't here last month, they'll ask the same question that somebody else did. I mean, if you're teaching it and you're in charge of what you ask, you can kind of control that. I've never worried about the fact that somebody asked the same question twice. I even had it where, I even had it where uh, it happened one week after the other week. Come to think of it, I've even happened where it happened twice in the same night because somebody came in late and asked the same question. You know what? I never worry about those things because I realize a great truth. That great truth is that you can go through something over and over again, and sometimes it takes that. One of the criticisms, I, I, I don't hear it very often, but I call it the first I call it the first step to getting out of fellowship. Somebody will say, well, you know, I don't come to Thursday night Bible study because they, they just keep talking about the same old stuff. My answer to that is this, yes, and you still don't understand it, see, because the price of learning is repetition. You've got to go over it and over it. 
To me, if, if, you, if you really wanted to learn a truth, you know how I'd do it? If you really want to get a truth, you know how I'd do it? I'd take one subject. Sunday morning, we schedule another class on Sunday night, and then we take Thursday night, and then we take Saturday morning, and I just teach you the same thing for about two months straight. At the end of that time, we probably would have it. That's what it takes. If you think you can just sit down at one helping and get it and understand it, the mark of a good Bible teacher, the mark of a, I talk about preaching when I teach these guys how to preach. Uh, there's an art to preaching. And the art of preaching, and this is where young men make a lot of mistakes. A lot of times, and they do it because they're young and they haven't got the, figured out how to put it all together yet. The thing that you don't want to do, and it happens many, many times, that they try to jam too much material into it. I've sat down and listened to guys preach, and, and it's just like they know a lot of material, and they're laying out so much stuff that you can't really focus on one thing. The art of preaching is simply this. The art of communication and God's Word and God's truth is simply this, and we find it with Paul here. That art is simply to take one concept and one theme that you want to get across and then find how to say the same thing about nine different ways and keep coming at it from a different angle. That's what he's doing. How many times now have we heard that you and I can live above sin? How many times has he recanted that? How many times has he said that over and over and over? And here again, in this section, in verse 14, he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. He said that over and over and over and over. I have preached it over and over and over, and yet some of us still don't have a handle on it and still don't understand how it works and that is the mark of the bible it keeps going over and over and over again because that's what it's take i didn't i didn't i didn't coin that phrase the price of learning is repetition but it is so true and if you're ever going to learn the bible you're going to have to buckle yourself in and realize that there's some things that you're going to have to spend a lot of time going over and over before you get it and uh, Romans and the great concepts of Romans is another one. And you're going to find it throughout the whole section. He's going to keep coming back and saying, don't let sin reign over you. Martin Luther was a great, a great uh, preacher. He wasn't very much on theology, but he was a great preacher. His strength is not in doctrine. And, of course, if you know anything about Martin Luther, you know he was the, he was the man that uh, broke from the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformation and started the Lutheran Church. And uh, his strong point was not his doctrine, but his strong point, rather, was his preaching. And when he found the truth, uh, he preached that truth, and he's one of the great heroes of the faith simply based on that. He used to say this. He say, you may not be able to stop the birds from flying over your head, but he says, you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. <laughs> and that's true about sin. Notice I don't have either problem. I mean, uh, you can't, you're not responsible for the sin that's out there. You're not. You can walk out to the mall and it's, it's before you everywhere you go. You can turn on a television and you can see it right there. Thursday night, somebody asked a question about, about music and, and how the uh, Christian worldly music or music in general. And we talked about how that music uh, speaks to your spirit. And that where all the other areas maybe will speak to your flesh, music has one design, and it, it, it communicates with your spirit. 
And your spirit is key into what you do because the spirit you and I have is like the rudder of a ship. And wherever we yield that spirit is where we direct us. And you're going to find uh, in your life and my life that, that uh, sin does not have to uh, have any reign over you and I. And you have the ability because of your soul being sealed and the spirit that you have yielding that to God's spirit or some other spirit and it directs you to where you want to go. And yes, you're not responsible for some of the things that are out there that you have to deal with. Some of your friends will bring things into your life that, that you know that you don't want to have anything to do with. Some of your relationships at work are driving down the road and simply looking at a billboard or listening to the radio or listening to music or watching something on TV. You don't really have any control over what's on there, but you do have the control to change the channel. I always tell young men in the aspect of lusting, because young men, well, maybe not young men, men have a problem with lusting. And I always tell them, the first looks free. It is. If you walk down the street and some gal walks out and got half no clothes on, that's not your fault. They don't make GPSs yet that show you where naked women are so you can steer clear of them. You go to Worlds of Fun, you go to the mall, you go wherever you go, it's there. And I always tell them when they ask me about it, the first look is free. It's the second one that kills you. It's the second one that kills you. And those are the things that you have to get control over. Those are things that you have to discipline yourself that there are some things, there's a line, and I'm not going to allow some things to cross over that line. That's where it has to be. And Paul over and over and over again drives home that great truth. When you and I got saved, God fixed it so you and I don't have to let sin run us any longer unless... We want to. Great concept. Look at the last part of verse 14. Yes, you're free from sin, and sin does not reign over you anymore. But look at the last part of that verse. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Now, I want to talk about that for a moment. In time, as you grow spiritually, you don't have to necessarily worry about it right now if you're just a young Christian. It'll come in time. But in time, if you keep coming on Thursday night and, you know, you keep growing and at some point, you know, get in and you start really getting into the Bible, you're going to need a deeper level of understanding of the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You may not need to worry about it right now, uh, but uh, in time, if you're ever going to put the Bible together, you're going to have to begin to understand that there's a significant difference between what went on in the Old Testament, which we call the time of the law, and what takes place in the New Testament, which will be called time of grace. Basically, just to give you kind of an introduction to it, the Old Testament, the Old Testament, when it was under the law, it was under a strict system of commandments. Now, in your Bible, sometimes, and this is where it gets a little confusing, you'll find the word law, when he talks about the law, sometimes where you find it, it'll be a reference to the Ten Commandments, because those ten were ten laws Uh, that God gave the nation of Israel, by which all the rest of the law is then built on. When you get into the Exodus and Leviticus and some of those places where it really gets into the letter of the law, you'll find there was a whole bunch of laws that they were given. The Old Testament was very strict. 
the Old Testament was very <coughs> unforgiving. And in the Old Testament, if a Jew broke one of those laws, if he broke one of those laws, then he had to give a sacrifice. He himself. And in the Old Testament, there's five different sacrifices that he could bring, depending on what he did. You had the burnt offering. You had the meat offering. You had one called the peace offering. You had one called the sin offering. You had one called the trespass offering. You don't need to understand how they all intertwine or how they're different right now. You just simply need to understand that the Old Testament under the law, and this is what he's saying here. He's saying, for you and I are not under the law, but we are under grace. And you need to basically understand the difference that in the Old Testament, when they did something wrong, when they broke a law, and some of those laws had to do with transgressions against man, your fellow neighbor. Some of them had to do with sin against God. And the law, the Ten Commandments, is broken down in that two ways. Some of them are toward God, some of them are toward man. The law in the Old Testament in Leviticus and Exodus was the same way. Some of them, the trespass offering was against man. What you trespassed against your neighbor. The sin offering was against God. What you did that violated some principle between you and God. It was a very strict and a very unforgiving set of rules that, were, uh, that they were required to keep. Now, but at the other side, there was an upside to it. It was very strict and it was very hard, but here's the, here's the good news. If you kept the law and you did what was right, as strict as it was, and you obeyed it, there was a trade-off. Because God would make a man rich and give him great material possessions if he kept the law. Kind of like, you do this, and I know it's tough, I'll, I'll give you this. And as long as you use this within the confines of this, you can really have a happy life. Remember the story of Job? When you read Job chapter 1, the Bible says that Job had great possessions. He, he's kind of like Ben Cartwright in the Ponderosa. He had everything. He had land, he had wealth, he had sheep, he had oxen, he had the whole thing. What happened? The Bible says that he loved God, he eschewed evil. That's an old English, that he stayed away from evil. Bible says that long before the law was ever laid down, and, and Job lived down around Abraham's time, long before the law. You know what Job's doing? He's offering sacrifices when he's not required to. Job is a guy who's not only giving what he needs to give, he's going way beyond that. And because he was willing to do what God required of him and to give over and above, that's why he's got all the wealth and all the riches that he has. What happened? The devil came in and the devil took it all away from him. You know what happens next? His three friends show up. And what does his three friends do? They sit down in the midst with Job and they begin to accuse him of some kind of sin in his life. They begin to probe and to prod and to get into his world and irritate Job. I mean, the guy's already lost everything. He lost his kids. His kids were all killed. He lost his house. He lost his, he lost his, his, his material possession. And then on top of that, he got a, some kind of terrible, painful disease. He's sitting on an ash heap with a piece of broken plate, scraping the pus off of the boils of his body. And then Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine show up. They sit down and they accuse Job of being in sin when he wasn't in sin. What was the basis by which they made their deduction? You know what they thought? They're operating under what the Old Testament standard is. 
They thought the moment Job lost all his riches, he had to have some kind of sin in his life, and God took it away from him. Remember over in Matthew, around chapter 19, remember over in Matthew when Jesus made the statement that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven? What did his disciples say? They looked at each other and said, well, who then can be saved? You know why? Because in their day under the law, riches, material possessions, having everything that you had was a sign of your relationship of God being on the plus side. So there was a trade-off to it. There was a trade-off to it. Now, the real downside to it is this, that in the Old Testament, you didn't have any eternal security. Right now, if you're saved, we know the operation made with God without hands that set away your flesh from you. They didn't have that. They were sealed under the day of redemption. They didn't have that. We are. They didn't have that. No, no, no. Whatever state they died in is the state they were in. And whatever state they died in is determined where they went, to God or Abraham's bosom or to hell. And that is probably the biggest downside to the whole thing. No Holy Spirit, no cross, no redemption, nothing like we have in the New Testament. Let me show you. Let me give you one of the greatest examples in the Bible back in Ezekiel. You want to look at this, and you want to mark this. This is one of the greatest examples in the Bible that shows you that people in the Old Testament under the law are not the same as you and I when it comes to their relationship with God. And you can also add to your list Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 20, though we'll not look at that one. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 24. Now watch this. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel under the law. You will never, 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 never find a verse like this in the New Testament for you and for me. Look at verse 24. But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness, all right, there's a man who is righteous, And then he turned away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and doeth according to all the abominations of the wicked man doeth. Shall he live? There's a question mark there. All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned in his trespass that he hath trespassed and in his sin. See that thing? Trespass, there's against man and his sin, there's against God. That he has sinned, in them shall he die. See that thing? There's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is what the book of Romans is trying to get across. The book of Romans is showing you what the church, the true church, is now to believe based on the coming of the New Testament after the crucifixion of Christ. It's showing you and I that sin does not have the ability to reign over us anymore because we now have the power of God to live above the circumstances. Let me show you something. What I'm about to show you, some of this will go over some of your head, bless your heart. Hang on, you'll get it in time. I want to show you one of the greatest things in the Bible. And when I tell you that the hand behind this King James Bible is so unique and so absolutely incredible that when you grasp it, it'll change your life and you realize that this book is different than any other book that you're ever going to see and it's worthy of you investing the rest of your life. Talked about going through the things of the Word of God. I've been through this book around 75 times. 
cover to cover. The last time I came through it, I finished up, was about two months ago. I'm taking a break from it now. Yes, that's right. Bob Alexander is not reading his Bible at this particular point in his life. You're right. I got other things I got to get done. But you know what? I make a list of everything God shows me. The last time I come through this book, I got a list of 275 things that I got the 75th time that I never saw the 74th time. You got to keep coming through it. And this is why what Romans does for you, Romans shows you the magnitude of the difference between what happened in the Old Testament and what happened now. What I'm about to show you is why I say what I say about this book. What I'm about to show you is worth $150 million in gold bullion as far as the hand and the fingerprints on this book that God wrote it the way He wanted it to be written. I know that of the shoot, some of you won't get this, and don't get discouraged if you don't. Now, I want, to get, I want you to get two passages here. The first passage I want you to get is in Habakkuk, and that's in the Old Testament. Habakkuk is after Ezekiel. And don't be, don't be embarrassed if it takes you a while to find them. I'm looking through mine just as slow as you are. You come through your Old Testament back there, and it's come back here to uh, Micah and then Nahum. And then after uh, Nahum is Habakkuk, excuse me. said tobacco. Some of your eyes lit up. It bothered me a little bit. <clears throat> now watch this. <clears throat> you got it? I want everybody to see this. We ain't, we'll stay here all day till you get this verse. All right, I want you to get that in one hand, and I want you to get Romans chapter 1, verse 17 in the other. Yes, this does call, this does call for dexterity. If you're someone here today and you only have one arm because of an industrial accident, if you're sitting next to somebody who does not read their Bible, just use their hand. Whatever. Now look at this. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Now I'm going to have somebody here. Give me a good booming voice here. Let's see who we got here. Let me see what we got here. Somebody here that... Uh, uh, okay, Zach, stand up and read that for me. Read Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Real loud. Turn around. Don't, I, I know what it says. <laughs> Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. All right. What did it say? The just shall live by his faith. You see that? See that? All right. Marrying you in the back, you got Romans 1, 7, or whatever it was I gave you. Was it 7 or 17? Read Romans 17 real loud. Now wait before he reads it. Read it again. The just shall live by his faith. All right? Read it. That's not how it's written. What word did he leave out in the New Testament? His. That's not what was said. Somebody says, oh, I found a mistake in the Bible. No, you're the mistake. The Bible's okay. The one verse says... The just shall live by his faith. Because in the Old Testament, it was your faith that you had to live by in the law. In the New Testament, in Romans, the just shall live by faith. His is taken out. For the faith I got in him up there. And the book he wrote me. Now, do you see that? You see the mind behind that Bible? 
That one place in the Old Testament when they're under the law and it's on your back to keep the law, it says the just shall live by his faith. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 17 in the New Testament, where your works have absolutely nothing to do with it, the just shall live by faith. That's my Bible, brother. Now here's the deal. The Old Testament, and this is the basic difference. And if you just get what I'm about to tell you right now, I'm satisfied. The Old Testament law demanded righteousness from the person who had to keep it. But in the Old Testament, the law didn't give them any power to produce that righteousness. They had to do it in their own faith. Grace, on the other hand, New Testament, you and me, not only gives you God's righteousness when you got saved freely at salvation, but then through the Holy Spirit of God living inside you, dwelling inside you, gives you the power then to live the righteousness which they didn't have in the Old Testament. See how it works? That's it. You need to know that. And you may not understand all the great ramifications of it at this time, but if you just get those last two statements, put them in your Bible, and get that concept down, you're way ahead of most people when it comes to the Bible. There's a difference between the Old Testament under the law and the New Testament under grace. And this is why he says that you and I are not the late let sin reign over us because for we are not under the law but under grace. There's a difference. There's a difference. Now look at verse 15. And I know where some of you are going right now, and I'm coming there to meet you. Look at verse 15. In light of what I just said, here comes another great concept. Paul had it covered. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? You see what he's saying? Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'm a Baptist. I'm not, and I hate telling people that. I'm not ashamed of being a Baptist, but there's so many idiot Baptists out there. I don't want to be associated with them. I had a friend of my time time that was a soul winner, and he was out winning people to Christ, and and he run into a he run into a a, a Church of Christ guy, and the Church of Christ are real big on their name. And he says uh, he got talking to him, and the guy says, uh, "Who are you?" And he says, "Well, I'm a Baptist." And he says, "Well, I don't read anything about a Baptist being in the Bible," which is true. I know a little bit of church history. And then my, my buddy said, well, where, what church do you go to? And he said, well, the only church I know in the Bible is the Church of Christ, which is true. Because if you're saved here this morning, you're in the true Church of Christ just by being saved. You understand that. Well, this, this heresy church, the Church of Christ, stole the name but don't have the doctrine. So he was getting on my buddy because my buddy was called, called himself a Baptist, which you don't find in the Bible. And most of you probably understand why. But at the same time, he was saying, well, what he was saying was, well, you ought to be, if you're really the true church, you should call yourself the church of Christ. And he said to my guy, I don't read anything about a Baptist church in that Bible. The only thing I read about is the church of Christ. Why don't you call yourself the church of Christ? And he said, my buddy, come back, start his attack. He says, well, we really are the church of Christ, but we don't call ourselves that because there's a bunch of people running around with a heresy, a baptism, regeneration, to call them the church of Christ. That was him. And we don't want anybody to think we're them. <laughs> you are the true church of Christ this morning if you're saved. You are the true church of Christ. Now, there's two, there's, in the concept of the local church, there's two aspects. This building is a New Testament local church. 
But there's nothing sacred about this building. Nothing. Nothing. This stuff here is just the same paper that they make newspaper on. This carpet down here is what they got. Same kind of carpet down to the tool shed just down the road here. Same stuff. These chairs that we got, we bought them from the tool shed. <laughs> Cleaned them up, got all the puke off of them, got all the beer stains off of them, and we used them. My point is this. There is nothing different between in this building. The true church, ladies and gentlemen, is not in a building made with hands. If you're saved here this morning, you are the true church. Now, in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's two concepts to that. There's the true church, which is the body of believers. And then there's the place where they meet and were commanded to meet, which is called in the New Testament, the local church. In the New Testament, God said the true church is to meet together for fellowship, strengthening, have a pastor, have a government, have a structure, all laid on the New Testament. And when they get there, they're there to strengthen, to edify, and to do a work together. And when I lead people through the Holy Spirit of God to come to a local New Testament church, then I put them in there for a reason. I orchestrate their lives to get them there. My job, the pastor's job, is to take those people, teach you, mold you, make you, get you through whatever tough times you got in life, and realize that this building is a building called Old Past Baptist Church, but the real Old Past Baptist Church is sitting in those chairs right now, if you're saved. That's the church. That's the church. As a Baptist, I believe in the doctrine of eternal security. Now, the number one thing you're going to get hit with when you start dealing with people, and we're going to teach you how to win people to Christ here in a couple of weeks. We're going to walk you through because I, I have never seen a time, I've never seen a time in my life that we have so many people getting saved right now. I mean, it's every, every other day. I, either somebody's coming over getting saved or somebody's getting saved here. It's just incredible what God's doing. And we're right on the tip of exploding this thing. And I need people who understand how to open a Bible and show somebody how to get saved. But I don't need, I don't need machines I mean, if we wanted to, we'd just go out and buy four or five laptops, program them in, and when a person wanted to get saved, go push button one, and a little screen would come up and lead you through the process. I, don't, I can do that. I don't want that. I want men and women who understand not just the verses, but understand what's going on behind the scenes that you've got to have in your head when you show somebody how to get saved. That's what we need, and that's what we're going to get. But this is what you're going to get hit with. And if you've done any kind of personal work at all, and you witness to people at all, you've been a, I've been a Baptist. And I, when I say that, I, and I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like to call myself a Baptist because there's a lot of idiot Baptists out there. So I always tell them, well, when somebody says, what church, what are you? And I say, well, I'm a Baptist with an explanation. And I give them the explanation of what kind of Baptist I am. There's a great notoriety and a great heritage of being a Baptist, but unfortunately... I mean, when you go to the grocery store and you look at all those beautiful apples on the cart there and they look so good to eat, you know what? If you start going through those apples, you're going to find some that don't look as good and some of them are just downright rotten. Well, Baptists are the same way. My goal in life is to keep you all to be good eating apples. That's why we're here at the Apple Center. But here's what you're going to hear. You're going to hear this from Nazarene. You're going to hear it from the holiness crowd. You're going to hear it from Karis Mag. They're going to say that. Oh, you're a Baptist. You believe in eternal security, don't you? Yes, I do. Oh, <clears throat> well, you believe you can live your life any way you want to and still go to heaven. 
You're going to hear that over and over and over and over and over and over again. Well, you believe, you believe, you Baptists believe that you can get saved and you can sit all you want and you're still going to go to heaven. Now, the answer to that is found in this verse, if they could. But when could you ever get a charismatic to read the Bible? The answer to that, after Paul just told you, there's a difference between law and grace. Then he comes back and he answers his own question because he knows where human nature is going to go. And so he answers it. He says, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid, he says. Now, no child of God who gets saved, who really gets saved, is going to look at it, wow, now I can go out and do whatever I want to do. My life with God and putting off the things of the world is not just because of the fact that I got a book that says, thou shalt not. It's because I understand the price that he paid for me on Calvary's cross. Maybe you don't. I realize that he died for me for a reason. Maybe you don't. I realize that when he hung on that cross, my name was on his lips. Maybe you haven't figured out that yours was. And when I understand and recognize what he did for me, and then I realize how he wants me to give a little bit of my life back to him, How in the world, if I'm sincere, when I know he's holy and he wants me to live a holy life and that's what pleases him, why would I get saved just to go out and do whatever I wanted to do and then hope I'm going to heaven? The true mark of salvation is that when you were truly saved, you become, you hate sin. You learn to love the things that God loves and you learn to hate the things that God hates. A true saved person, when he he lets God down, it breaks his heart. You weep. You get so mad at yourself. You kick yourself. You go find the meanest dog in the yard and you let him bite you. You slap yourself. You kick yourself. You hate yourself. Because deep down inside, the Holy Spirit of God is grieved. And you realize what he did for you. What he gave up for you. The price that was paid for you. And you realize you just let him down. You don't get saved and walk around and say, oh boy, I'm saved and going to heaven. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. If that's your attitude, you didn't get saved. No child of God has an excuse to sin after salvation or to live an ungodly life. But if he does, it doesn't mean that he's not going to heaven. It means he's got some issues in his life that he better work on. Somebody said, well, I'm a Christian. Will my particular sin keep me out of heaven? No, just the opposite. That particular sin, along with some of the other ones, will probably get you there quicker. Guy said one time, well, drinking a beer send me to hell? No, but it'll probably get you there quicker. Loving God the right way. Learning who God is. Understanding the great principles of Isaiah 55, 8, 9, and 10. That my ways aren't God's ways. My thoughts aren't His thoughts. Brings me to the point that when you get into the Bible, when you build your relationship, you find out what He wants. You find out what He did for you. And then when you let Him down, 
grieves you in your heart. When he becomes the best friend you ever had, the one who has never let you down, never failed you, never not been there. And even after we fail him, he still abides faithful to me. Boy, that got to get you. How do you do that, somebody says. Well, I gave you the verse last week that was a key verse, Ephesians 4.23. And be ye renewed in the spirit of your mind. We do what's right because we want to please God after we understand all that he did for us. You won't go to hell. I'll tell you, to me, what's worse than going to hell? You see, I already know I deserve to go to hell. I'm not afraid of going to hell because I know I deserve that. If God would come down today and said, Bob, I've just pulled your ticket, and by the way, I made a mistake, and you are going to hell, I'd look at him after knowing me and knowing him and knowing that book, and as hard as I didn't want to, I'd have to look him in the eye knowing what I know and say, well, you're absolutely right. I don't want to do it. I don't want to go. I wish there was another way out, but I know you're right. I don't have a problem with going to hell, even though I can't. I have a problem with letting him down. You know what the judgment seat of Christ is going to be? I know we don't like to think about it. I know we don't like to think about it. But you know what the judgment seat is going to be? I've heard preachers say when you go to the judgment seat of Christ, God's going to whip you, going to beat you, going to chase you around with a big stick. Now, he'll do that down here. No, the judgment seat of Christ won't be about any of that. The judgment seat of Christ will simply be this. See, right now, right now, you have the mind of Christ in your hand. Right now, you have everything that was ever in God's mind in your hand in that Bible. And right now, you're told to put that book in your mind to let it be your mind and start to look at things the way God does and change who you are to get more like Christ every day of your life. God has a plan for each one of you. That plan is different than my plan. He has a will for you. The will is the same. We become more like Christ every day of our lives. When we get to the judgment seat of Christ, you know what it's going to be? It's going to be then what it ought to be now, and it's not. In that day, it's going to be what it ought to be now. Because then you're going to have the mind not in the book, but it's going to be in here. You're going to be him. You're him now. You just don't want to reckon yourself that you are. And right then, when you get there, for the first time, when you stand before him, and you see those eyes, and you have the mind of Christ, and you realize everything that he did for you and me. We can't, at that day, we won't brush it under the thing with something else we want to do. In that day, it'll be you and him. The great model of it is over there with Christ, with Peter, after he denied him. Great model. And you're going to stand there with no distractions, no football game to go to, no fishing events, no this, no that, no, no sports, no football game, no baseball game, no hockey game, no, no, nothing. It's going to be nothing to distract you right between your eyes to his eyes, and you're going to realize in that split instant everything that he did for you. Every pain, every agony, every grieving, everything. And you're going to see the whole plan and what God had for you. And that thought is going to come right through your mind. You gave him absolutely nothing back. That's the judgment seat of Christ. That's what it'll be. Thankless Christians, selfish Christians, baby Christians, Christians all about me. 
finally coming to the place where all the victim status is gone. All the excuses are stripped away. All the stuff that we hide behind is taken out of the way. And it's simply, you had a book that would let you do everything for me because it told you everything I did for you. What do you say? What do I say? What do I say in that day? I was too busy. Look at this 15-point buck. Look at the big fish. Look who won the World Series. See how it puts it into perspective? It's an incredible, incredible. Now, I'm not saying you ought to all go out and shave your heads, get a robe, and be a monk. Wouldn't hurt a few of you. I'm saying you better figure out why you're here. You better figure out the fact that, that uh, if you're really growing and you're really doing what God wants you to do, you don't glory in the fact that you can go out and do whatever you want to do. That's not a child of God. And Paul himself hit the subject before the ever charismatic ever got it out of his mouth. He says, shall we, because we are not under the law, but under grace, do whatever we want to do? God forbid. Because God, Paul knew that the, the premise of doing right isn't because I'm under grace and I'm going to get whacked. It's because I love him. Because of what he gave up for me. What he did for me. When I understand it, God, you can have everything I am and everything I got. Tell me what you want me to do. That's the difference. Look at verse 16. Boy, this is a real clear verse. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I'm going to teach you this verse and show you how it applies when we go through the soul winning classes. But one of my favorite passages in the Bible, to me, I like passages that leave nothing to the imagination. I like passages that when you're dealing with a young man or a young lady and, and they may not know a lot about the Bible, that you don't have to wade through. My rule of thumb is if I've got to explain it to you, we're probably in trouble. I don't want to have, I want to keep it simple. I want to keep it basic. And when I deal with a man or a woman on their soul, and maybe they're of another religion, or maybe they've been tied up in a different church, or maybe they've been this or that, or whatever, where I always take them is an undeniable verse that puts it right on the table, face up, every card. And there's nowhere you can go with it except one place or the other. And it's found in 1 John chapter 5, and it's in verse 12. What I'm about to give you is the clearest book in the, verse in the Bible that says either you're saved or you're not. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. Now the most amazing thing about that, it's all one-syllable words. That verse simply says, sitting here this morning... Don't tell me about your baptism. Don't tell me about your church membership. Don't tell me this. Don't tell me that. It's sitting here this morning. Either you have him or you don't. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You either have him today or you don't have him today. There's no middle ground. Now let me show you the greatest verse for you and me as a Christian. I use that for an unsaved person. Now let me show you what I use for a saved person. Back to verse 16, Romans chapter 6. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, 
his servants ye are to whom you obey. See that same thing? No middle ground. We as Christians, we like to play this game that I'm not really out of fellowship with God, but I'm not really in fellowship with God. We like this little scenario in our minds. Let me tell you, just in the same tone, you're either having this morning or you don't. You're either saved or you're lost. By the same token, by the same great powerful word, you are either in fellowship with him this morning or you are out of fellowship with him this morning. There is no middle ground. The reason why we will never build a large church, and I've told you before that the ideal church in the Bible is probably right around 400, based on the Old Testament laid out, a couple of types back there. I am never, never worried about ever hitting 400. I'm not really worried about hitting 250. And the reason why I'm not is because of my style of preaching. Because the people don't like my style of preaching. You guys are all insane. <laughs> why would you come every week and listen to a guy who every time he gets up here leaves you no place to hide? Why would you do that if you're not nuts? I bet we come home and I go down to your basement, you probably got chains hanging down there with them big black things you hang around your neck and pull yourself up and you whip yourself and all that stuff. You gotta be, you gotta be that way to come here every week. Why in the world would you put up with this? <clears throat> Guy said to me one time, he says, man, he says, you know what? He says, I like your preaching, but I don't like your preaching. He says, I really like what you say, but man, I says, I don't like what you say. And I said, you got it easy. You only got to hear it once. I start on Monday and work on it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I got to go through it six times before I give it to you. You only got to hear it once. That's why I'm the way I am. <laughs> why would you come here? I wouldn't. Why aren't you down to the first chirp of the soap sud someplace? Where it's all love and it's all peace and you're good and you're good and I'm good. We're all good. Why would you come week after week after week and expose yourself to somebody's preaching who is like a, what am I like? I'm undescribable. I'm like a drug sniffing dog at the airport. I'm. I'm sniffing everything. Why would you do that? What's wrong with you? Why would you consistently come to a place where when you leave, inside of you, you get yourself beat up? Oh, I know every week I don't do that, and I give you a lot of good health things and a lot of things throughout the week and all those things. But the bottom line is this. Any preacher worth his salt if you feel absolutely 100% good about yourself when you walk out the door, didn't do his job. Now, I'm not on any crusade to give you some kind of complex, but I am on a crusade for the truth. And I do realize that we all, me included, we like to have that twilight zone. Only Rod Sterling lives there. You know the twilight zone? It isn't dark. And it didn't light somewhere in between. That's where most Christians want to live. 
My style of ministry has never allowed them to live there. Never. Jesus was the same way, not that I'm any example of him. But in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, when he was up against it, and the scribes and the Pharisees, and everybody was kind of choosing up sides, you know what he said? He simply said this, if you're not with me, you're against me. No middle ground there. None at all. He said in Matthew chapter 6, no man can serve two masters. You either serve the one or the other. No middle ground there. That's why this church will never get to that point. That's why some people, when they come, they say, you know what? That's not what I'm looking for. I understand that. I'm not mad at it. You know what? Guy said to me, he said, well, brother, I want you to know, I came to church, and, 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 and you're just not what I'm looking for. I said, I understand. After meeting you, you're not what I'm looking for. Now, he got mad. Why is it you can say to me, you're not what I'm looking for, but if I say to you, you're not what I'm looking for either. I mean, if he'd have said, Bob, you're ugly, and I'd have said, well, that makes two of us, you're ugly too. <laughs> What's the deal? Why can you be honest with me, but I can't be honest with you? There'll never be any middle ground, because the day we do, we'll become like everybody else. I can get more done with 50 of you plugged in than 200 of you with half of you not plugged in. I don't know what to tell you. You say, where do you find that at? It's called a Bible. It's a black book with kind of gilt edges around here. God's faithful few has always been the minority. Gideon started out with 31,000, wound up with 300. There was four or five billion people on planet Earth in Genesis chapter 6. Eight got on the ark. The nation of Israel, out of the whole nation of what? 100 million billion people, 144,000. Don't you know your Bible? But let's be real clear on the issue. This morning, you're either saved or you're lost. And if you're saved, you're either in fellowship or you're out of fellowship. Now, we've been through the process of how to get back in fellowship. It's no big deal. Thou shalt confess thy mouth, you know, and ask God to forgive you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we're faithful to us to confess our sins, he's faithful to us to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's your ticket. That's your ticket. All right, look at verse 17, and we're going to close here. Oh, we're going to get out early today. Well, I better write another page here before we get done here. I'm not going to let that happen to you. Okay. Verse 17. But God be thanked. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord. But God be thanked. That ye were the servants of sin. Yes, we were, weren't we? Remember those days? Remember those days? But ye have obeyed from the heart. Here it comes. That form of doctrine, watch it, was delivered you. Now, when I take you in a couple of weeks, we start to work with you and how to win somebody to Christ. Remember those 12 doctrines I gave you a while back we got into Romans? The doctrines of salvation found in the book of Romans? You know what, you know what he says there? He says, that form of doctrine was delivered unto you that spoke to your heart is how you and I got saved. You see, winning people to Christ is more than just having the Romans road to Matthew Turnpike or the James Highway. It, it has to do with understanding behind the scenes what you're trying to accomplish. There's some things 
that a person has to know to be saved. There's some things that you have to know about a person, what they need to know to win them to Christ. Winning people to Christ is not, everybody thinks, well, you know what, uh, how do you do it? It's not about how you do it. It's about do you understand why you're doing what you're doing? See, I want people that aren't just robots. I want people who understand the concept. You don't have to be a theologian to figure it out, but you need to understand what we're talking about. Go back and lay it out. Study it. Get it together. The key phrase here, form of doctrine. The book of Romans forms the doctrine for the New Testament church. I told you when we started. Book of Acts tells you where the true church is at. Book of Romans tells you what the true church is supposed to believe. In a couple of weeks, we're going to teach you how to win somebody to Christ. We're going to take some of you ladies starting next Sunday or Saturday, and we're going to show you how to build the foundation to be a better woman for Christ, a better mother, a better wife, whatever, whatever you're at in your life, how to get you to the place where you stabilize yourself, where you learn uh, the number one thing I think a person, after they get saved, needs to know. It'll help you. Once we get through the soul winning, I'm going to do the same thing for the guys. I got to get people ready. I'm going to comb this church for every inkling of leadership. If I, can even, if I even see you push the button on a water fountain correctly, I'm going to watch you. I, I'm going to comb this church for every man and for every woman that shows an inkling of being able to lead and, and work in ministry and work with people. I'm not interested in, in it's the consistency I'm looking for. And I, I, there's a, God will never give us any more than we are willing to take care of. And at this stage of my life, I'm booked up to my eyeballs. I got other people that are working with me booked up to their eyeballs. We need to spread this thing out to the place. But the bottom line is this. Bottom line is this. We ain't doing it your way. Ain't happening your way. It has to be done God's way. Priorities have to be in the right place. You have to keep and reckon yourself built on the day you're going to look into those eyes and you're going to really understand what life for you was all about on planet Earth. With a heartbeat, you're going to see what God really had for you and how you got everything else all in the way of it simply because you refused to get out of the twilight zone. You refused to play this game in your mind that you're in the middle someplace when there's no middle to be in. There's no middle to be in. My goal is that I told you when we started this year, it's going to be the year of the Bible. I had no idea where all this was going. But I know this. We have some people in this very room today that have the ability to be something for God and be used of God if you'll just get yourself out of the way. These doctrines that he talks about here, but God be thanked, that you were servants of sin. Yes, we were. But you have obeyed from the heart the day you got saved. What did you obey? That form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Now you take that doctrine, you learn that doctrine. You, you put that doctrine in your life. You let it change you. You let it work in your life. You let it work on your attitude. You work on this. You work on that. You don't get focused on what the devil's trying to do to shake you. And I guarantee you, kids, I'm telling you, once you commit to do what's right with God, once you commit to do what's right with that book, once you commit to give it to God, once you commit to turn it over to Him, you're going to get it in the neck. Do me this favor. 
Call me tomorrow morning if you're struggling right now between 8 and 8.15. And call me on my cell phone. And when I see the number, I'm not going to say hello. I'm not going to, hey, how are you? I'm going to give you the verse for today. I'm going to start my own personal verse for today. And it's going to be this. This is the day the Lord hath made. And you're going to get it in the neck. You're going to get it. You're going to get beat six ways from Sunday. You're going to get run over. You're going to get thrown under the bus, on top of the bus, in front of the bus, behind the bus, and it's going to back up and run over you again. You're going to find everything in this world going to come crashing down. The bottom line is, when a soldier goes through his training, when a soldier gets out of basic, when he gets out of AIT, he's ready for combat. And when you put him in combat, yes, it is a, it is a scary world. Yes, the first time you're in it, second time you're in it, probably the hundredth time you're in it. You're scared to death. But the bottom line is, you have faith in how you've been trained, and you just simply say, here it is. I was reading a book last week. I love books on, on, on World War II, and especially my interest has always been the airborne units. And somebody gave me a book a while back. It was on the history of the 82nd Airborne. And, you know, airborne guys were always kind of cocky anyhow. They thought they were better than everybody else, and they were. They got a little extra money every month because they had jump status. And uh, on the front of this thing, it's a great. On the front of this thing, it shows this big picture of this, you know, 82nd Airborne. And underneath of it is a little capture. And it says, during the Battle of the Bulge, during the Battle of the Bulge, he says, Private, I forget his name, was digging at foxhole on the defense on the perimeter of a stone. When a, when a, when a tank commander coming the road into Bastogne stopped and said, is this the front lines, Private? He got up and he says, yes, sir, it is. He says, by the way, sir, are you looking for a safe place? He says, I certainly am. He says, and just park behind me because I'm the 82nd Airborne and them blankety blanks ain't coming any farther in here. That's what I'm talking about. That's the attitude you had to have. You dig in, you hold the line. Sure, it's going to come over your head. Sure, you're going to have problems in your family. You think the devil's going to say, well, thank you for getting saved, and I'm just so glad. Thank you for getting saved. Oh, we're all going to, you're going to church now. Well, I'm sorry to lose you. I'm not sure I lost you. Aren't you going to come around and see me every once in a while? Uh, I'm so, so sorry to hear we're not going to have a relationship anymore. Uh, so sorry you're not going to be back. You'll be back. They're so sorry that you're not going to be around. You know what? I'm going to miss you. But I want you to know, let's let bygones be bygones. Go to church. We had some great times together, didn't we? Remember that? Remember when he was chasing you around a Woodstock back there, you know, and you were both smoking dope? Remember that? Remember how it was when you came across a valley board with George Washington on the prowl? Remember how it was? Boy, I'm, you know what? I'm going to miss you guys. Joe, I'm going to miss you. We had some great time together. Whoa, you changed your hair. Oh, I like it. You know what? And I'm going to miss you. I'm going to miss And I'm going to miss you guys. Thanks for all the great times we had. But you know what? Oh, say la guerre, say la guerre, say la guerre. I don't know what that means, but it sounds French. You know what? I'm sorry. We had some great time together. Go to church. Go to Old Path. Get the new look from the old book. You know what? There's always more people to damn out there. Go have, We had our time together. I'm sorry I lost you. Go do it. You think he's going to do that? He ain't going to do that. He knows this. 
He may never get your soul in hell. If you're saved and you're redeemed and you're under the blood of the Lamb, you're under grace, He knows the moment you got saved, you're sealed on the day of redemption. But He also knows this. He can wreak havoc in your life, get you to get back into the world, get you to get and make an attempt, and then things start to shake around you, things start to happen, you start to get discouraged. That's how He's going to play it. Don't give in. Is this the front line, private? Yes, sir. Pulling behind me. I'm the 82nd. Those blankety blanks ain't getting any farther than here. That's the attitude you got to have. Reckon yourself dead. I'm a child of God. I'm digging in here. You want to say spot? Get on my back. Nobody's coming past this point. What it takes. What it takes. That's the victorious Christian life. It's consistent. You're going to tell me that those boys in World War II weren't scared to death when they were in combat? Sure they were. Sure they were. They were scared to the point where sometimes they, they, they messed their own pants up with their own bodily fluids. They were scared to death. Scared to death. But you know what? They held the line. I'm not saying don't be scared. I'm not saying you won't duck. I'm not saying somebody won't knock you down. I'm saying get up. Hold that line. You don't see right now what God sees. Right over your horizon, you may have a great, God may be using you and have somebody in your life that he wants to put in there. And right now, the very thing, whether you break and whether you fold or whether you stand, is a determining factor where this thing goes. Reckon. Fix yourself on that judgment seat of Christ. Don't let nothing, anything, not a thing, don't let a thing ever deter you from the fact that he's coming. And when he's coming, I'm going to face him. No sham, no this, no that, no excuses, no, no, no blaming it on somebody else. Me and him with a book in the middle. I'm telling you, kids, we're at the crossroads of something really great. And it's going to take every man. It's going to take every woman. God gave us this in his timing in the right place. Gave us what we have. And I say it all the time. And I know I say it because you don't believe it. I know you don't believe it. I know it's hard to believe. I'm not saying you don't believe it because you're a bad person. I just say it's hard to believe. But I'm telling you the truth. You're in this church for a reason. You're not here because you went down. You got mad at some other buddy and you were driving down the street and said, Oh, I think I'll try that one. We don't get any people like that. In fact, if we ever do put up a sign, it's going to say, Old Past Baptist Church, no vacancy. Full up. Got all the friends we need right now. Thank you. You know what? If you're here, you're here because by God's design, He got you here. Don't you see it? Don't you understand it? Don't you realize the Spirit of God? Can't you look back in your life and, your, and how the Holy Spirit of God worked His way through, brought the right person at your life at the right time to say the right thing in the right time, in the right struggle, in the right this, to give you what you needed, to get you here, because He's got something He wants you to do. Come on! And yes, yes, I'm sorry, there is a price tag for that. But it ain't nothing for the price tag that he paid for you and for me.
Let's go to work. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father.